politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Donald Trump prepares to take the speakership. Joe Biden builds the wall. And uh, has anyone noticed these interest rates? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, the dominator, Dominic Pino and Madeline Maddie Kearns. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are ExpressVPN and Made in Cookware. More about both of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Dominic, Speaker Kevin McCarthy is gone, long gone. Already feels like a different era. (laughs) It was kind of unimaginable on Tuesday that they would actually do it. But once the the Democrats swung hard against McCarthy, basically he was going to get zero help, wasn't going to get any present votes. Uh, it was it was clear a handful of uh, Republicans would be able to topple him as Liam, uh, Liam Donovan, a Republican strategist, very active on Twitter, posted at some point on Tuesday. You know, I can I can forgive the the Democrats for for not coming to McCarthy's aid in in this instance. I can't forgive them for making Matt Gates look like a genius. Uh, I'm not sure that maybe genius might be a little strong, but he he got what he he wanted. Uh, he deposed McCarthy. McCarthy afterwards in this kind of Bullworth worthy press conference said it it all goes back to this ethics complaint about. Um, Gates and underage girls, et cetera, and McCarthy not squashing it. Be that as it may, he's gone. And what do you make of it? Well, first of all, it's a good thing that um, a lot of other members of the House Republican Conference and the Senate Republican Conference are speaking up about how Gates is a troublemaker with no goal in mind. um, And they are being much more uh, open in their criticism of him, which I think is a good thing for the conference um, because, and it's something that should have happened a while ago, because it's not like, you know, it, it, it may have been surprising that he was actually able to uh, uh, dethrone McCarthy, but it was not surprising that he is not really interested in conservative policy um, is not really interested in anything other than attention for himself. Uh, and so uh, to the extent he is a genius, he is a genius at hogging attention um, I do think there's, as always, a little bit of uh, uh, glee from the media on this that they try to uh, play up and sensationalize a lot of this uh, to make it seem uh, like it's the end of the world. Um, it is not the end of the world for legislatures to, uh, you know, uh, overthrow their leaders. This happens 
frequently it is not necessarily a sign of good government or it is certainly a setback for conservative policy. Um, so it is it is a setback for the conservative cause in the United States for sure. But it is not in any way a sign that Congress itself is broken or the institution is a problem or anything anything like that. Um, I would say you know it's a much bigger problem and this doesn't get covered in the same way by the media. Uh, but it is a much bigger problem for Congress as an institution that Congress can't pass a budget, and they haven't for decades, uh, consistently. Anyway, um, that does not get played up as chaos, as broken institutions or whatever, and both parties are guilty of it. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, the reason for that is it's not as easy for the media to just say, oh, Republicans are idiots. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, it, it is a little bit over-sensationalized. And, and look, you know, the, the House has a very, very narrow majority. And um, it's always going to be hard in that kind of a situation to uh, maintain maintain the uh, governing coalition, which is in effect what it is. I mean, we we saw this play out. We had, you know, eight Republicans that are sort of the um, confidence and supply, so to speak, uh, for the rest of the Republicans. Um, That's probably how we would think of it in a a, uh, parliamentary system, which, you know, the House of Representatives is... Uh, in, in structure and form very similar to uh, the House of Commons in the UK or Canada, for example. So I, I think uh, it is, um, yeah, it, it's a problem for conservatives and for conservative policy. Uh, Congress will make it, but uh, the bigger problems of Congress remain, which is that, uh, you know, they, they, they can't do their most fundamental job, which is to uh, pass a budget on time and according to the rules. Yeah, so when when Matt Gates was standing up there, Maddie, and saying we need single subject appropriations bills, we got to do away with these continuing resolutions. We have to do away with these omnibus bills jammed down our throats right at the the end of a a Congress. We have thirty three trillion in, in debt. We need to do something about that. He's not wrong about any of that. You know, he's completely right about all that. It's just that he's he's made it more difficult and or has no solution, right? Where's his debt plan? Where's his entitlement reform plan? Well, he doesn't have one. So this this was not Kevin McCarthy's fault and whoever's the next speaker, maybe it's Steve Scalise, maybe it's Jim Jordan. It's going to be exactly the same thing because McCarthy uh, was a product of his circumstances here. And then, then I also say, you know, Dominic's absolutely right about the difficulties of having a four or five seat majority in the House. But the Republicans have a a different kind of difficulty. There's a different nature to their internal politics than to the Democrats, where the Democrats don't, most of them really don't hate their own party. They don't hate their their own establishment with a, uh, a burning fire of a thousand suns. They may be critical of it. They may think it's too cautious. But th- th- there, there's been a whole different attitude uh, on the Republican side for, for a long time now. It made John Boehner's life miserable. It made Paul Ryan's life miserable. It ended Kevin McCarthy's speakership after nine months. And, you know, you have Matt Gates or Nancy Mace, who, this, this unpredictable member that no one thought would vote against McCarthy and did. You know, she's on CNN. The establishment's out to get me because she she knows that kind of politics works on the Republican side and just doesn't have the same sort of purchase among Democrats. Yeah, there's a strange place in politics where the far left and the fringe right meet. And it's in their philosophy of tear it down and figure out the rest afterwards. And this is obviously profoundly unconservative. It's it's the opposite of what conservatives try to do, which is to reform in order to conserve. And I think of Matt Gates as somebody who has been in the limelight a few times before. 
never because of his own merit, never because of his own vision or purpose. We Obviously, there was, was various unsavoury allegations made against him. The Department of Justice, ju- Justice dropped um, the, the worst ones, but there's still ongoing investigations into sexual misconduct, illicit drug use, um, various sort of other things to do with uh, misuse of, of uh, or accepting impermissible gifts under house rules and, and that sort of thing. And this was a way of making himself the hero of the story. And McCarthy did have a very difficult job, but he also, in some ways, made uh, some mistakes. And he spoke about this on the press conference on Tuesday. He said, you know, in some ways, I've empowered exactly these types of people. I've I've helped them get elected. I've given them committee assignments. And then, obviously, he, he, made, he made the mistake, although he... He, he had to in order to, to get the speakership, but he made the mistake of, of, uh, of allowing this one vote threshold to trigger the motion to vacate the speaker, um, which came back to bite him. And um, yeah, you're exactly right. This is the, the, fo- the minority force within the Republican Party that has outsized influence. Um, and, you know, it, it was it was eight Republicans voting with the Democrats, but they shouldn't eight Republicans shouldn't have that much power. Um, it's like trying to ride like a, a bull, you know, thinking it's a horse. Like whatever, whatever you do, you end up just going wherever it wants. Uh, you end up on the ground if you if you try and mm-hmm. redirect it. And that's that's the pro- the real problem here that the um, Republicans have had really ever since Trump. And obviously, Trump's still around, and that's that's a big part of it. So, Charlie, to to make the uh, put an exclamation point on the farcical nature of events over the the last week, you had um, members of the House saying we're going to advance uh, Donald Trump's name for the for the speakership. You had a rumor that Donald Trump was going to show up at the Republican candidate forum that's scheduled for next week. You had had uh, media influencers, pro-Trump media influencers, say maybe he's interested in this. Maybe we should do this. And, and Trump actually saying he'd be willing he'd be willing to serve just on a temporary basis, say for the next next six months or so. Because that's just what we need, isn't it? We already have an issue with Donald Trump persistently seeking executive office, and now we need him as a legislator as well. Maybe he could be on the Supreme Court after that. I agree with Dominic that this isn't a crisis, and it doesn't show that our system is broken. It doesn't show that Congress needs to be abolished or whatever. But I do disagree slightly in that I think the Democrats should have helped the Republicans out here. At least I think they should if their rhetoric is to be believed. And for years, we've been told about the importance of a functioning democracy. And those of us who are critical of Trump have been told that we are obliged to stand up and oppose and make life difficult for those within our politics who throw grenades and don't respect the system. The Democrats are not going to be in charge of the House of Representatives. They don't have enough elected officials. Had they wished to, they could have stopped this stunt. They don't have to like Kevin McCarthy. They don't have to vote for any bills that Kevin McCarthy brings up. They don't have in any way to violate their consciences. But they could have made good on their worldview and helped out the GOP, or one part of it, in this circumstance. And Megan McArdle said this on Twitter. When you make that case, people say in return, well, what's in it for the Democrats? I think the answer is a great deal, actually, because I do think the House was 
better off with McCarthy uh, than with an alternative. But even if the answer is nothing, it is the same answer as is given to conservatives who say what's in it for me to oppose Trumpism. I think what we saw here was that a great deal of the saccharine language that we are subjected to every day is actually hollow. And that when push comes to shove and the Democratic Party has the opportunity to say, actually, we don't want to be any part of this, no, it's not willing to do so. And I think Republicans ought to remember that. As for Matt Gates, yeah, Matt Gates has no ideology. He has no plan. This was not achieved in service of something lofty. He did not get rid of Kevin McCarthy because Kevin McCarthy had broken the rules, because Kevin McCarthy had broken his word, because if he got rid of Kevin McCarthy, all of a sudden we would close the deficits or pay down some of the debt or protect a constitutional right. This was once again a, a non sequitur. There's no meaningful therefore there. I would have been much more sympathetic had there been one, but there wasn't. And once again, I worry that we are seeing Republicans present themselves to the public as something of a joke. Look at the polling we are seeing about Republican advantages across the board. Republicans are trusted on the economy over the Democratic Party to a degree they haven't been for more than 30 years. I think the highest number recorded uh, in, a, in 70 years. Uh, Donald Trump himself, let alone Republicans, is trusted on foreign policy and crime and immigration and economics and so on more than the Democrats. And yet that is wiped out when you ask, do you trust Donald Trump to be president of the United States, do you think that he is personally well suited to it? The answer is no. And I think it would be a profound mistake if conservatives and Republicans created the same dynamic in Congress, where the public mm -hmm. was saying, we trust you more than the Democrats on the economy and crime and immigration and foreign policy and so on and so forth. But as was just demonstrated once again, we don't really think you can deal with the levers of power. Well, to a certain extent, yeah. they've already they've already created that, right? Because um, you know the House majority that Republicans barely won in 2022 should have been much bigger than it was um, between poor candidates in in crucial districts and um, and uh, being too attached in the eyes of voters to to Trump. Um, they they performed very poorly for a a first year. Uh, of, a, of a democratic administration or first midterm in a democratic administration. And, um, and, and so, you know, ultimately some of this does go back to Kevin McCarthy, right? Because McCarthy attached himself at the hip to Donald Trump during the campaign season. Um, he, he was unable to uh, select better candidates. He was unable to fundraise and defeat in primaries some of these problematic candidates that did have opponents going up against them. And as a result of that, uh, had a very, very narrow majority um, that then forced him to make all these concessions in order to become the the, the speaker. So uh, I think, unfortunately, Charlie, I think Republicans have actually already created that dynamic to a certain extent in the House, and uh, this does not help to get them back on the right path. 
Yeah, Charlie, th- this is why what you outlined at the end there, why I, I would have done the exact same thing that Hakeem Jeffries did. Because as you point out, they're sucking wind on pretty much all the issues. There's an ex- extraordinary Marquette poll that has Trump winning on everything pretty much, except for, I don't know, maybe abortion or, or some other uh, lower priority issues over Biden. Certainly everything in, in, important, all, all the big marquee issues like the economy and, and foreign affairs. So what do you got? You know, you got uh, Trump's character and unworthiness, and you have Republican chaos. So if you have an opportunity to kind of let them stew in their juices without you really, you know, th- this it's not like Jeffries and the Democrats are doing anything unprecedented. They always vote against the Republican speaker. That's what opposing parties always do. So why, why not let them, uh, at least for a week or so, uh, and maybe more, de- demonstrate incompetence and chaos? Sure, but then don't go on Morning Joe and talk about the importance of removing from our political system people who just want to sow chaos when you have the chance to stop it because Mm -hmm. they didn't they elevated him and to your point about liam donovan now he looks certainly to a portion of the electorate as if he did something Mm -hmm. terrific and should be rewarded for it yeah don dan mclaughlin had a good post about how just uh, obviously the the rules and the outcomes you know this is inevitable you can't complain about it but that affect the perception of things there you know there are more votes to in, impeach trump uh, or whatever it was than there were to remove mccarthy but since as an accident of the rules and this this uh, ability of one member to offer the motion to vacate and then the fact that the opposing party is going to vote against uh, whatever speaker no matter what uh, from the opposing party, it makes as though that this tide you know, swept McCarthy out when it was an accident of the rules and a, just a small handful of, of members. So before we go to the exit question, just one last observation on on Kevin McCarthy. It is, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a turning over a new leaf because it's the end of uh, and this this is very antiquated concept, but end of the young guns. Fred Barnes of the Weekly Standard wrote this cover story back in 2007 about Eric Cantor, Paul Ryan, and Kevin McCarthy, these rising stars, these reformers, kind of anti-establishment guys who thought the party had lost its way and gotten too comfortable with the institution who were going to take over and make a new Republican Party. And they all did rise to significant uh, positions. Two of them were speakers, but they they, they all uh, exited or had downfalls that that really spoke to phases of the the, the Trump era populism. Cantor's the first; he's the warning signal. He goes down in a primary to a nobody who's hitting him on a, on immigration and populist themes. That that's a sign that anything could happen. Then then Ryan was um, the the phase of and McConnell uh, exemplified this too for a while of you know fruitful but awkward accommodation uh, with with Trump and cooperation on some important things, including tax reform. But you know Ryan ultimately sees the parties going another way and retires. And then you have McCarthy, the different level of accommodation, where it's not just like, okay, here, here's someone who uh, believes some different stuff than, than we do and is, is a little wild, you know, a little rough around the edges, but we can get along, you know, to swallowing the post-January uh, 6th, the post-2020 Trump, having to accommodate and change his tune on that. And and it didn't work, you know, and it, it all ended in, in ashes. And there's probably even more uh, more accommodations and more wild uh, stuff to come, especially next year. But Dominic, exit question to you. Whoever is the next speaker, Scalise, Jim Jordan, someone else, will still be Speaker of the House six months from now, yes or no? We ask this question about McCarthy a lot, so it's, it's time to ask it about his successor even before we know who his successor is. 
Um, six months from now or six months from when he becomes speaker? Because I think there could actually be a, a, a gap there. Either. I'm not picky. Okay. Um, I'll say, I'll say yes. I think, um, uh, I, I don't think there's probably that much. Um, uh, I don't think it's worth the effort to pull this kind of stunt twice. I think this is probably a one-time thing. And also it's, we're going to be in the uh, swing of election season at that point. Um, so I, I don't think there'll be as much effort for it. I, I just want to add as well, what you mentioned about Cantor, it's important to remember the, um, uh, the, uh, the guy who defeated him in the Republican primary was then defeated by a Democrat, and that district is now controlled yep. by a Democrat. So, yeah, uh, Dave Brad, that's one, a, one, one term, if I'm yep. not mistaken. Charlie Cook. I hope Dominic's right, but I'm not convinced that its election season is going to be sufficient to prevent this from happening again. I don't think it was driven by thoughtful consideration in the first instance. But I'll, I'll, I'll go with Dominic's estimation because i can see that there is little case for a repeat on the merits many i'm gonna say no um i share mccarthy's fears uh, that he expressed on his way out saying that he fears the institution has been damaged by this because you can't really do the job of speaker if you have 95 percent of your entire conference but then eight people can partner with the whole other side i mean how how do you govern um so i i think there's more chaos to come i appreciate it it's a bold no i'm gonna go yes and maybe be wrong the same way i was uh with mccarthy all along when i was saying he would survive uh, w- one thing we all said about McCarthy is that there's no alternative. There's there's always all, an alternative. Once, once the incumbent is totally out of the way, there, there's always someone else who's willing to take on the job. And you know, a switch from from McCarthy to Scalise is not going to be uh, uh, very very noticeable. And this is if consistency mattered to Gates, or if you're capable of embarrassment, he would have waited until the 45 days from the current continue of the continue current continuing resolution expired. And, and let McCarthy cut another deal with, with Democrats and then uh, taking take him out behind the barn. But instead, Scalise or Jordan, whoever it is, is going to have to do exactly the same thing that McCarthy did, cut a totally unsatisfying deal with the Democrats or, or do a government shutdown and then cut a totally unsatisfying deal uh, with, with the Democrats. So a lack of foresight, amazingly enough, on the part of Matt Gates. But I'm going to say, yeah, it's going to be harder for him to do it the second time, and he's not going to do it the second time. And whoever it is, whoever gets this uh, uh, honor will still be there six months from now. With that, Charlie Cook, let's go to you for our first sponsor, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN, which I use when I travel, and I have been traveling a lot in the last few days. I've been almost constantly connected via ExpressVPN. Why is that? Well, that's because the big tech companies, the social media sites, ISPs, and so on, really are not helping when it comes to the upholding of free speech. They're setting some pretty dangerous precedents, and instead, the big tech monopoly has opted for silencing tactics and for censorship. How? Well, have you ever wondered how free-to-access tech giants make all of their money? They do this by tracking your searches, your video history, everything you click on, then they build a profile on you, and then they sell off your sensitive data to third parties. But 
When you use the ExpressVPN app on your computer or your phone or your iPad or whatever device you have, really, the software hides your IP address from third parties and replaces it with ExpressVPNs, which makes your activity more difficult, perhaps even impossible for companies to trace and sell to advertisers, and that helps keep your online presence more anonymous. ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your network data to protect you from eavesdroppers, cybercriminals, and so forth. And that's why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET, Wired, TechRadar, and countless others. So, if you don't want to be tracked, if you don't want your data sold to advertisers, if you don't want to put yourself in the hands of big tech companies, why not revoke their right to your data? and secure your internet with the VPN that I trust and use for online protection. That's ExpressVPN. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash editors, that's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash editors, you'll get three extra months free with that exclusive link. Thanks so much, Charlie. So, Maddie, we got Joe Biden building that wall down on the southern border. A lot of confusion over this one, there was an announcement in the Federal Registry. Everyone kind of seized on it. Well, look, uh, Joe Biden said the, the wall is a mistake. It's never going to work. And here he is building the wall. And then they came out and said, no, 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 guys, we don't want to build this. Um, it's just required by federal funding that was appropriated in 2019 before Biden was president. So we're just following the law here. So if you're on the left and you're upset about this, please, please know we just have zero choice. But they waived, I think it was 23 various regulations to actually build this thing. What do you make of it? Yeah, so Jim had a good uh, analysis of this in the morning jolt this morning where he basically says, yeah, the, the Biden story checks out to a certain extent. They they weren't trying to make a big show of this. Um, they are bound to continue with the, the the money set aside for for Trump's wall. They have to continue with it legally. So that's what they were really doing here. Um, but I think the fact that everybody gets really excited when anything happens on the border because Biden has seemingly done something when in fact it doesn't seem like he's done an awful lot is just symbolic sort of of his complete impotence with dealing with the problem. And, you know, we, we've seen in, in recent weeks and months the, the continued pressure on the Biden administration from Democratic leaders in cities such as New York and Chicago and elsewhere uh, since Republicans have been doing their, their stunt of busing migrants to blue states um, to actually share the burden of this problem. And, you, you know, there, there's been... A lot of uh, political consequence for that, I think, in, in terms of um, getting these Democratic leaders to actually say things that they would not have been saying before this. And so something happens on the border. It turns out it's just basically the same as what the Trump administration were doing, except even weaker. Biden has said he doesn't think this is going to make any difference. He's right about that. It's not going to make any difference. But the question still remains, well, what are you going to do about this? Because the, the border crisis is only getting worse. Yeah, so Dominic, uh, another area where the, they, they, uh, you get mixed signals is now they're saying, we're deporting Venezuelans who are, are coming across. After, you know, just just several weeks ago, they implemented a lawless program to, to give work pro- permits to uh, Venezuelans. And th- this, this accords with what we're seeing with, with Eric Adams 
you know, he, he went down there to Mexico City and said, stop coming. You, this is a fool's errand. New York City is full. But the, the only messaging that matters to these migrants who are genuinely desperate people, and we have, should have sympathy for their, their plight, is what they're hearing from their former neighbors, from family members, et cetera, on whether they're getting in or not. That's the most credible information. You know, I think it was the Obama campaign in 2012 or whatever figured out, you know, it's peer-to-peer communication that matters most in political messaging. So they had this operation to to have, you know, neighbors tell their neighbors to vote for Obama or information about Obamacare or whatever it was. But that's that that's what they're going to really make the judgment on. And you can say we're going to deport people, but unless you there's a really sustained effort to do it and you're really serious about it such that people are returning and the message is sent south of the border actually our friends neighbors and family members aren't getting in they're they're undertaking this weeks-long uh, dangerous trek and coming right back and spending having spent a lot of money to do it that that would have uh, uh, an impact on on people but just just Eric Adams showing up or the Biden administration having some latest announcement isn't going to do it uh, I think we all know that the actual policy for Democrats hasn't changed here. Um, that uh, this is not going to really become a major focus for them, uh, as Maddie already said, and as you know, Jim has written. This is um, they weren't trying to make a big deal out of this. Um, I think the real, uh, you know, the the underlying issue here is isn't the wall already supposed to be there? Um, we had Donald Trump as president for four years who claimed, you know, claimed to be the most, you know, immigration restrictionist, uh, going to secure the border. We're finally going to keep the promises that Republicans have been making forever. And we're actually going to do this. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to get this under control and you have four years in office. And, and for some reason, this is left to Joe Biden to, to finish. Um, that, that I think is, is a real, uh, uh, the, the, the real, the real issue here, um, you know, if if there would have been a little bit more, uh, uh, a little bit more planning and a little bit more intentionality and competence in the in the Trump administration, maybe this wouldn't be as bad of a problem as it has become. Because you know, once you build something like a border wall, it's not like Joe Biden's going to go tear it down. Um, I, I I think uh, you know, and 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 as we see now, uh, they actually do for once are are, are following following the law here and, and doing what, uh, doing what they're supposed to. So, uh, you know, it, it should already be there. Um, I, I think there's, uh, I think that's a, a, that's a major failure from, uh, the, the previous administration and, uh, we're, we're seeing the consequences of it. So Charlie, I was having lunch at a New York city restaurant yesterday and w- watching the, the muted TV, which was on the local news and had a report about this and the, the banner they have, they, they must you know use it use it for every report on this, was Asylum Seeker Crisis, which I think gets to part of the intellectual problem here. They, uh, the left views all, all these people as asylum seekers. There's some really small proportion who genuinely have something to fear from their government, have been persecuted for some reason. They couldn't claim asylum in all the other countries they're transiting to get here. And, and we'll have a claim uh, that 
should be considered and, and maybe should be accepted. But the vast majority are just coming here and they say this in every single interview because they want to better their economic lot, which is a, a basic human um, motivation. Uh, again, I wouldn't be judgmental about these uh, people, a lot of them, because um, if we were in the same circumstances and we could get in, you know, a lot of us would, would do the same thing. But the view is since they're asylum seekers, there's like a moral obligation to take them all in and there'd be something wrong with turning them away. And I think that's that's what basically motivates this de facto open border policy, at least for a segment of illegal immigrants. Certainly. And then on the progressive side, progressives have talked themselves into the idea that it is in some way racist or intolerant or un-American to have an immigration policy at all. I'm quite happy to criticize Donald Trump as Dominic did, but I don't really think the story is about Trump. I think the story is about Joe Biden. Joe Biden is not a stickler for the law. The idea that Joe Biden has his hands tied and therefore he reluctantly has to execute congressional will is preposterous. Given how he has behaved every other time, he has been asked to respect his oath of office and follow the instructions set by the legislature. Joe Biden is doing this because although he does still not want to be associated with the idea of stricter immigration enforcement at the border, he understands that this is a political liability. He can read polls. He can see what focus groups say. He understands that there is an election next year and that this is a weakness. And he has decided as a result to do something about it while pretending that he was forced into that by Congress. The reason that Joe Biden has such a disastrous problem on his hands is that he reversed policies set out by the Trump administration that were actually rather good. Now, Trump didn't build the wall. He didn't do everything that he said that he would do. There were a lot of problems with his presidency. And that's before we get to his behavior and his total disregard for the rule of law. But one thing Donald Trump did get more right than Joe Biden is immigration enforcement, because Joe Biden is hampered by this preposterous intellectual position that immigration enforcement is per se racist. And Donald Trump was not. In fact, most Americans are not. When it comes to illegal immigration, Donald Trump was much more in line with the average American than is Joe Biden, which is, of course, the problem that Joe Biden is trying to solve. And you can see, once again, good examples of something that I've complained about on previous episodes, which is that this whole area is Calvin Ball. When Donald Trump is president, it's kids in cages. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez goes to the border in her white clothes and she cries for the camera. Rachel Maddow cries on air. Jim Acosta shows up at the White House and starts reading the new Colossus. We get images of the Statue of Liberty crying. Now? Well, now it's fine. Now we have the mayors of New York and Chicago talking about trade-offs and the need for thoughtful policy, lest we have to spend our resources on untrammeled illegal immigration. I would wager that while there will be a few consistent progressives who say this is a terrible idea and that Joe Biden is given in to right-wing extremism or whatever, you will not see the concerted attempt to cast this as the rejection of all that is good and true in America. 
So, Dominic, if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee and is elected president again next year, how big a role will the border situation have played in his election victory? Zero. It's just not that big a deal at the end of the day compared to the economy, foreign affairs, Biden's age, whatever. Some or a lot? Uh, I'm going to say a lot. I think it'll be um, right up there with the economy um, because I don't think the economic situation is going to change dramatically between now and then. But uh, I think, uh, you know, yeah, it'll definitely be up there. And, you know, it was one of the things that happened in 2016 is people underestimated the uh, the uh, salience of the immigration issue with a lot of voters. And I think uh, the situation is definitely worse now than it was then at the border. And so uh, I think I think it will it'll, it'll help him. Maddie. I'm going to say some because I think if Biden wasn't showing alarming signs of mental decline and if the economy was in good shape, I think it would be less of an issue. Um, but because those other things are bad, it's it's getting more uh, more intention. I think if Donald Trump wins the presidency next year, by definition, the border will have played an enormous role, as I think it did in 2016. I think the Democrats are blind to this, and perhaps they're opening one eye a little bit now. But this is a huge issue for a huge number of people, and I think this is acknowledged even by people who don't like Trump, who say, what's the line if you if you don't demand that responsible people enforce the border, then the public will put irresponsible people in place to do it. So I'm going to say somewhere between some and a lot. It's not a very first tier issue like the economy, but it is is important just uh, um, in its own right. And I mean, we've seen the the squawking in all these uh, democratic cities just getting to how this is much more than just a border issue. But uh, it's underlined Joe Biden's incompetence. And I think Afghanistan and the border are the main factors that have convinced people that he, he is not the, the norms honoring um, <coughs> hyper competent answer to Donald Trump that they were looking for, which uh, accounts for the, the polling, at least at the moment, being extraordinarily good. Donald Trump. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor, Made In, has spoken to a lot of people who use their cookware, and they found that people consistently say two things about Made In cookware. They can feel the difference when using Made In products. They can taste a difference in their cooking, too. Born from a 100-year-old family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply, Made In works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Discover your best dinners ahead with artisan-made, restaurant-quality cookware, top professional chefs use Made In, including Tom Colicchio, Brooke Williamson, Grant Actis, and Stephanie Izzard, and much, much more. Made In's award-winning non-stick cookware has a double layer of professional-grade non-stick coating. Made In's stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. Made In's carbon steel cookware can handle up to 1,200 degrees and is perfect for cooking on your stove, grill, or even an open flame, plus an extensive collection of knives, bakeware, glassware, plateware, and more. Now, we found all this to be true and the Lowry Kitchen, I'm just steps away from the Lowry Kitchen as I speak. Our made-in pans are great to handle here at home. They cook evenly, and very importantly, they are easy to clean. And I say this is a guy who spends a lot of time standing at the sink, listening to podcasts, cleaning 
dishes. So it's very important that Maiden cleans so easily. And some Maiden cookware gets our highest recommendation here in the Lowry household, and especially my wife's recommendation. Editors, listeners can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from Maiden. For full details, visit maidencookware.com slash editors. That's maidencookware.com slash editors. Let me assure you, you will not regret it. So Dominic, speaking of things we should regret, it has been the conventional wisdom for a while now, certainly functionally, if not explicitly, in many cases explicitly, eh, spending's for free. Why shouldn't we do more of it. There's no downside. You have these historically low interest rates. It's a great time to invest in everything we need to invest in in America. And every federal expenditure, by the way, is defined as an investment for these purposes. And now, lo and behold, we had this uh, bout of inflation, not totally uh, vanquished yet, and the, the Fed raising rates and what's happening? Interest rates are going up, and they may be uh, going up even more ahead, and this makes the, the debt picture look much more dire, the, or more dire even than it did before. What do you make of it? Well, first of all, describing government spending as investment is a euphemism, and it's wrong. Um, government spending uh, is only from money that was taken from other people, whether by taxation uh, or by borrowing, which crowds out other private investment, and so um, that is that is that is the first part of part of the problem there in that mentality that you described, which was a mentality that many policymakers held for much of the 2010s, because in the 2010s interest rates were near zero. Um, they uh, that was the result of monetary policy carried out by the Federal Reserve and lots of other central banks around the world. Uh, in an effort to, uh, you know, goose the economy after the Great Recession. And um, those interest rates stayed near zero for a very, very long time. And so, uh, you know, uh, the um, uh, interest rate researcher Jim Grant sort of says this was the 4,000-year low point of interest rates um, that, that, that we have never seen, uh, you know, interest rates. So is that literal, literal 4,000 years? Uh, based, on, based on the research that he's done, I mean, we, we actually do have pretty solid uh, records of interest rates going back for a long time. But I mean, it's also just a simple fact that we've never really had up until that point, we've never had a situation where central banks were able to uh, exert that kind of influence on, on world markets. So, um, uh, so, so yeah, so we were basically, we were, we were gearing our economic long-term planning around, uh, around a, a 4,000 year low point in a, in a time series. So that's, that's not a great idea, first of all. Um, but uh, now we're seeing the consequences of that because uh, unlike what you might think, uh, a lot of federal spending is actually, or excuse me, a lot of federal borrowing, a lot of federal debt is issued in uh, short term. And so it's not like we locked in interest rates with a bunch of 50-year bonds uh, that we sold when interest rates were 1% or 2%. Um, the average maturity on federal debt is about 70 months. And so a lot of that debt turns over constantly and the treasury has to go out and sell more bonds in order to pay for uh, the new borrowing that the government keeps doing. Um, so uh, the uh, there's you know two sides of the problem here. One is that our deficit is way too big to begin with just in general, no matter what the interest rate is. Um, so, uh, so the treasury has to keep going out and uh, issuing 
tons and tons of new bonds in order to make up for that. But uh, but the second point is that interest rates are uh, you know reaching up around four or five percent now, which is you know at least double what they were even uh, uh, even you know two two years ago, and uh, a lot of that debt a lot of that debt is set to turn over, and then we're going to be stuck with that for uh, for a, a longer amount of time. Now we don't know what interest rates are going to do in the future, right? Uh, this is this is <laughs> this is part of the problem that we're in now is that. In, in in you know ten years ago, people weren't thinking about the possibility that uh, interest rates would go up. Um, and so, when you see a lot of projections, like from the Congressional Budget Office, for example, they're only projecting that interest rates stay around four percent for the next thirty years. Okay, so we're already above four percent right now. Uh, we don't know what it's going to look like thirty years from now, but they, they, that's kind of their assumption that's baked in. And even with that relatively nice, happy assumption, uh, it's it's a really, really nasty situation where by 2053, by 30 years from now, the CBO projects that about one third of taxpayer money is going to go just to the cost of interest payments. So that means one third of every dollar that you give, uh, you know, 33 cents of every dollar you give to the government in taxes is just going to be to pay for other spending. You're not going to get mm-hmm. anything for it. And so... Uh, so that is that is where we're headed, uh, and both parties are promising to to bring us there by uh, by no, nobody having a serious plan to balance the budget or even get it closer to balanced, and nobody having a plan to reform entitlements, which are the ultimate driver of a lot of the debt. But now we're getting into a situation where we're we're, we're being driven, uh, we're, we're having so much debt that interest on the debt is going to be a larger driver of. Uh, of the debt than even the entitlements are. So uh, it's mm-hmm. it's a bad it's a bad situation, and it's still in the start of it. Yeah, Charlie. So you can argue as uh, and my I set up. I was talking about all all spending for the other side being investment, and Dominic uh, obviously rejected that. There's some federal spending that's genuinely an, an investment, but what everyone should agree is not in any way. It, it, it's just not imaginable that it'll be an investment is just spending money, servicing the debt on spending you've already uh, done. We don't have a plan. It's really as simple as that. We don't have a plan. We don't want a plan. We don't respond to massive exogenous events as if they even happened. How many times have I admitted my own naivety in writing, in having believed that Joe Biden would come into office and recognizing that the United States had just spent trillions upon trillions of dollars, conclude that all of the plans that he might have had were thereby moot. I can't believe that I thought that, but I thought that was inevitable. We just spent, what, $5 trillion? And instead what happened was that Joe Biden came in pushed through on a party-line basis $2 trillion of spending, and then tried to spend another between 3 and 6 depending on which plan was being debated that day. That is a sign of not having a plan. The Republicans are better than the Democrats on this, but they don't have a plan either. They talk a good game about it. They at least acknowledge there's a problem. They resist adding new entitlements, mostly. But when they're pushed, they say, well, well, we won't touch anything that really matters. They won't touch entitlements, which are the primary driver. 
they will balance the budget in what 10 years was the plan among the most fiscally conservative of them and yes back in 2017 this is not the biggest problem by any stretch of the imagination in fact it pales compared to spending but the republicans passed a tax reform bill that while admirable in a vacuum has added to the deficit and thereby to the debt there's no plan the plan is to spend and spend and spend and spend until we all hit the sun i guess well the sun goes out perhaps and we all die well now look if, if the sun if this the, is one of as if on. the sun if the sun is the bond market uh that's probably right because it, bondholders are going to demand higher interest payments in order to buy u.s debt that that's that's the problem here and that's the kind of loop that congress needs to understand which is that uh you know we're we're in a situation where the higher levels of borrowing uh decreases the perception of the ability of the government to actually pay back bondholders in the event uh, in the event of a default or in the event of you know some kind of catastrophe yeah. and so bondholders in response are going to demand a higher interest rate in order to buy treasury bonds and so that cycle plays out and then interest rates keep going up and by the way that affects interest rates for everybody else too right so we're looking at you know if you're looking to buy a home if you're looking to buy a car if you're looking to start a business and take out a loan all of that stuff gets affected by this too and so you have this effect of government crowding out a lot of that uh private activity which then reduces economic growth which then makes the debt problem even worse because now you're not having the gdp growth to counter the uh the growth in spending and so um it's 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 a really really bad vicious cycle it's something that we've seen in happen been play out in other countries before and it's something we need to make sure we avoid here so i think it's worth our pointing out here that outside of elected officials who have all manner of pressures and we know that the public does not reward those who stand up and tell the truth about our fiscal situation it is extraordinarily annoying to watch people who have spent the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years being utterly irresponsible in print and in academia suddenly write about the phenomena that Dominic has just identified and that has, of course, been consistent on since he began writing as if they had just discovered them. We can go back to 2008-9 and we will find people saying, don't worry about inflation. Inflation's not an issue anymore. And in the case of 2008-9, they happened to be right, although I think Republicans were correct to decline to risk it. But they were wrong after COVID. They were wrong. They insisted that they were right, that history had ended and inflation would no longer be an issue, and they got it wrong, and look what they have done. Because the interest rates that we're talking about are the direct response of that. And now, now that those interest rates have gone up... The same people are saying, wow, I guess the debt does matter after all. Who would have thought? Annie Lowry in the Atlantic? As if she just discovered this four minutes ago. Saying, oh, I, I think we may have a problem here. We keep borrowing money. We have no plan to balance the budget. We keep piling on the debt as a result. And look at these interest rates. And this is going to... Yeah, we know. We've been talking about it. That's why you don't risk it. It's the same in foreign policy. You don't get rid of your navy because there isn't a threat right this second. You don't risk inflation and you don't borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow on the assumption that interest rates will always be historically low. There are 
huge number of people, economists, journalists, political analysts, and so on, who should be shamed for their role in this because they were the ones telling Joe Biden and Republicans and others historically, don't worry about it. Go be FDR. Go be LBJ. We can afford it. We need to make real investments in America. And this strange period in human history, the only time ever where for, what is it, Dominic, 30 years we had low inflation and for 10 or 15 we had low interest rates. That will go on forever. If you just want it, it'll happen. Those people bear some of the responsibility for this because those politicians have listened to them as well as to the public. Many. Yeah, the US is an incredibly prosperous country and we've we've gotten used to the Treasury's immense borrowing capacity. And as Charlie says, that can't go on forever, even if politicians behave or believe otherwise, reality is going to hit at some point. And I think we're we're about to see this in fact with uh, student loans. The three year pause is lifted this month or, or earlier uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we're about to see the, the huge financial stress that people are going to see, uh, pay, students are going to um, experience when they have to start actually paying back these loans. Sounded like a good idea, but in fact, it's not a good idea long term. Um, and, you know, Dominic mentioned the fact that um, there, there was a tendency to borrow too much when money was, was cheap, but... It, it does seem reckless that they didn't take advantage of that in securing these lower rates to lock in lower borrowing costs. Um, so, yeah, the answer to, to get out of this mess is obviously to curb spending. But given that the government can barely even get a routine budget through to prevent a shutdown, um, I, I don't really see that. There, as Charlie says, there is no plan. And we don't want a plan. Dominic, Dominic X, a question to you. The U.S. will experience a debt crisis eventually yes or no um yeah at some point the bond market will force it because um like i said and like maddie mentioned you know if congress can't pass these basic things um that's part of the reason that you know fitch and s&p have downgraded uh, u.s debt that's one of the things that they mentioned when they when they made those decisions um because uh they just look at that and they say look this is this is not a uh, this government is not serious. They they do not care about this. And uh, and you know, in the event of a crisis, um, in the event of a true crisis where uh, a default or something like that, um, who is supposed to get paid first? Bondholders are supposed to get paid first. That's how it's supposed to work because um, those are the people who lend you the money and uh, and, and so on. But uh, in the event of a crisis, it's very easy to see whoever is president, Democrat or Republican, I don't think this matters. They're going to say, Social Security and Medicare recipients, you will get paid first because uh, you paid into the system, you earned it, it's an entitlement, etc. And that will play very well. And that will be that will be a politically popular thing to do. But uh, bondholders will hear that and say, oh crap, that means we're not getting paid. Uh, and some of us might just be out of money. And in that situation, U.S. Treasuries, which... Uh, undergird the entire economic system of the world as the safest possible asset because it's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. Um, they are no longer the safest asset anymore because in that situation, uh, uh, you know, we have an explicit promise from the politicians leading the country that bondholders are actually not first in line. Uh, that becomes a huge problem then, right? So, and that's a thing that can be a problem just from people talking, right? Like it, it doesn't even actually have to happen. Uh, whatever the, whatever the crisis is doesn't actually have to happen. It just has to be enough to shake the confidence 
of of bond holders, you know, in the United States and around the world, uh, to make them think twice about this idea that that treasuries are actually as safe as they thought they were. And so that's a real problem. That's that's the direction we're headed, though. And uh, you know, we we still have opportunities to reform and to 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 get uh, to get ourselves on a better footing before it gets to that point. But that's that's what a crisis could look like, and it's very plausible politically to see it happening. Charlie. Dominic, by the way, will, will come to your house and depress you for a small fee. <laughs> yeah, Dominic, do you have anything else to say about the coming debt crisis? <laughs> just, just want to make sure. Ah, <laughs> uh, I mean, it can't go on forever. So eventually, what Dominic has just described is going to come to pass. And the question is going to be, are we going to respond to that or are we going to respond to the threat of it because the political and economic future of the united states will be very different depending on which course we take thus far we just don't seem to respond to anything nothing wakes us up i hope that there are now enough people saying look at these numbers and the speed at which they're accelerating to bring a change about in our politics within two or three years. But I, I, I don't know. We, we still herald as a genius any politician who has worked out that the public doesn't like talk of this sort of thing. <laughs> Maddie? Um, yeah, I think, I think we're heading for a crisis just because I just don't see a political corrective on the horizon. Yeah, I would say... Eventually, yes. I uh, just underline the word the, the word eventually, because it could take quite some time. I mean, people spent the 18th and 19th century. Oh, the the British they're going to have a, a terrible debt crisis because of the latest war, whatever it was, and they just had such a, a robust financial system. It never came until it did, <laughs> until it finally did. So it might be it might be quite some time, but uh, eventually, yes. It's hard to see how we get off this trajectory. With that, let me do a quick plug for some stuff going on at NR. We got the first monthly print edition is almost upon us. It goes to press next week. And then a week or two later, it'll begin arriving in people's inboxes. It should be a product that you're very happy with if you're a print subscriber. If you're not a print subscriber, become one. Um, in time to get this this issue. Maybe you're too late to get this issue, but uh, uh, you, you'll you'll want to subscribe and get the the monthly edition uh, articles a little little longer, more thoughtful, not uh, quite as consumed with the the news cycle. Although you know print articles were were already uh, you know different from from our web content, but the, the transition to monthly is an opportunity to to even even be a little more uh, uh, thirty thousand feet in our analysis. And covers there'll be sundry new features, including a statistical breakdown once a month from none other than Dominic. I'm, I think he's filed his uh, his one for the new issue. I haven't seen it yet. Maybe it's about the the looming debt crisis. Let's not ruin it for people, Dominic. But uh, I'll just I'll just leave leave that hanging there for our readers. And just physically, it's a bigger magazine. It's been redesigned, a sparkling redesign and better quality paper. So you just pick it up and you're like, wow, this is something new and exciting. And as part of that, we are going to have a weekly edition of the week for the first time since the 1955 to 1957 interlude when the magazine was actually weekly. 
deliver to people's inboxes once a week, every Friday morning. That will start the week after the monthly goes to press or about two weeks away from that. Uh, more information about how to sign up to come. And then finally, let me do my custom plug for NR Plus. We think we, we have wonderful content. We trust that you think it's uh, wonderful and value it as well. And therefore, we ask you just to pay a little bit for it, not a lot, just a little bit, and join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR Plus. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Maddie, you have been watching, I take it, at Ag Agatha Christie adaptations? Yeah. Um, so there's the new Kenneth Branagh movie out um, in theaters just now. I went to go see that. It's not very good. And I think the reason it's not very good is because it doesn't really stay faithful to Agatha Christie's story. And the best adaptations do stay faithful. Um, I think we've mentioned before in this podcast, David Suchet is probably the best Poirot. Um, but another one I've watched recently is the ABC Murders um, which is on Amazon Prime and it's got a French actor. I can't remember the guy's name, but anyway, it was quite good, quite diverting. Uh, I think they took some liberties, but it was it was more or less um, uh, an accurate portrayal of what Christie wrote. And what what story is the Kenneth Branagh? It's well, it's 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 called A Haunting in Venice. It's actually based on a story called uh, A Halloween Party, and basically nothing is the same except it's set around Halloween. Like the original story is not in Venice, but they've made it in Venice. Uh, there's anyway, there's there's a lot of, of of silliness in it, but um, it's still enjoyable. You know, there's still some jumpy, spooky moments, and you, you're still guessing uh, the explanation. But by the time the explanation arrives, it's rather ridiculous. So, Dominic, just like the New York Yankees, your softball team's season has come to an end. I hope not quite as ignominious, ignominious an end, but has ended. Oh, it was it was much better than the Yankees, Rich. Um, the uh, <laughs> the our softball team was the number three seed in the uh, in the tournament at the end of the year for mm -hmm. uh, for the uh, House Softball League, and so uh, that's with uh, Manfred Manfred Went our. Um, uh, National Review Institute campus outreach guy. He the good um, Manfred in baseball. What was that? The good Manfred in baseball. Absolutely, as opposed yes. to Rob Manfred. Yes, Manfred. Uh, this, this is the you, you played with the Manfred who's not actually saved the game of baseball. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he's our he's our star first baseman, and then um, uh, Haley Strack is also on the team, our Buckley fellow, and uh, and so we we got into the tournament. We cleaned up in our first two games. Roan ruled them. It was it was it was beautiful. Wow. We got into the quarterfinal game, and. Uh, we were tied and we had bases loaded uh, with nobody out uh, and it started uh, pouring rain. Uh, and no. so the rest of the game, the rest of the day was a washout. So we came back next week and then we finished the game. We started right where we left off bases loaded tie game, nobody out. And we stomped them. Uh, we came. We 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 put wow. up a ton of runs. We stomped them. We went to the semifinals now. And then then you th then you went to the semifinals against the speaker Kevin McCarthy team, which had to dissolve and forfeit. <laughs> so then you then you're into the finals. If, then what happened? If only, if only. No, we got to the semifinals. That was the first time that we were the uh, lower seed because the two seed cleaned up in their in their side of the bracket like they were supposed to. So we played the two seed and. Um, uh, I was the interim manager for the uh, for the second day, or oh, wow. because Play, player manager. That's right, Love because uh, our um, <laughs> our uh, our original 
uh, manager, uh, Manfred's brother Jonah, um, was uh, away because we were not planning on having to play again in the next week because it was all supposed to be one day, but the rain changed that. So I oversaw our victory in the quarterfinals and I oversaw our defeat, unfortunately, in the semifinals. Yeah. We lost, it was a back and forth game, but we lost 20 to 18. Um, so it was. Uh, uh, oh, wow. Yeah. No. To be honest, are you, are you, are you a good in game manager? Um, I thought it went well. I thought it went well. We rejiggered the lineup a little bit, uh, based on how people were, how people were performing. Um, so, uh, so it, it, it went all right, but, uh, you know, we were the three seed and we got third place. So, uh, we did exactly what we were supposed Uh, to do. If you're a manager like Aaron Boone after this uh, loss, when you're one of your players went zero for six, you have to say. But he or she was barreling the ball really well, and and <laughs> I think seeing the ball better, and it's it's re- it's really looking good. It's going to turn around at at any moment. So Charlie, you were among the uh, mountains in rural Utah. I was. It was my I think fourth trip to rural Utah to Cedar City, which is absolutely beautiful. It's right on the edge of zion national park so is this like saint saint george area it's about an hour from saint george yeah that's the airport that i flew into rented a car from lovely little airport i love those mountain west little airports that you fly into and there's one room where you wait and one gate and you walk out onto the tarmac and get on the plane up some steps feels like flying in the 1950s or something anyway i was out there and it was a reminder as well as a floridian that the temperature changes in most normal places and it's nice and warm during the day but when it gets to nighttime it drops down to like 38 39 degrees um and you are aware that you're at altitude both because there's snow on the top of the mountains and the the air at least to me feels palpably thinner and perhaps that's because the air in florida is thick because of the humidity but it was a it was a nice little uh, trip away and a sort of perspective um granter yeah one of the most gorgeous parts of the, the country just yeah no doubt so we had a hawk who was sitting on our roof and that's that's all i got but i, I love hawk so much i was just Standing there, taking pictures, taking video. I wasn't doing anything. It was just, it was just sitting, or standing, I guess. Or you know, they do both um, on on a roof. And I was hoping something ha- would happen. It would swoop down and try to you know, get a chipmunk or something. But nothing. It just, uh, it just stayed there until it was getting dark, and I had to go inside. But speaking of flying, Sarah Shuddy, everyone is wondering what happened with your pilot test. I passed. Wow. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you to all of the listeners who, for the last number of months, have been sending me emails asking about my progress. I've been very touched with with how concerned everybody was about it. Awesome. Yeah, it meant a lot. Congratulations. Thank you so so much. So how long is it? When did you start? Um, It took me from the day I took my Discovery flight until... Uh, Wednesday, it took me 487 days. Wow. Awesome. 87.4 hours of flight time and wow. a, the enormous amount of studying. I should, I should calculate that because it's in the hundreds of hours. That's awesome. Uh, well, congratulations. Yeah, it's very time. impressive. Thank so you. with that, it's time for our Editor's Picks. Maddie Kearns, what's your pick? My pick is Dominic's uh, piece against the emergency alert system, which I'm not sure I agreed with, but it was really persuasive. <laughs> I basically think there are people who 
don't watch the news. And I know some of these people, they don't watch the news, but they're constantly on their phone, um, on Snapchat, TikTok, whatever. And if there was a zombie apocalypse, God forbid, they might benefit from the emergency alert system. So you didn't quite persuade me, but it was a very, mm-hmm. it was a very good piece. Well, according to the emergency alert system, there has been a zombie apocalypse when it got hacked <laughs> and uh, somebody put that message out. Um, <laughs> Terrifying. Dominic, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is uh, Armand White on Airplane. Uh, it is a great piece basically saying that uh, Airplane is the uh, the movie Airplane is the kind of uh, humor that we need in uh, politics today. I think that is true all the time because Airplane is the funniest movie ever made. Charlie Cook? It is indeed the funniest movie ever made. Another good opinion from Dominic. I am, though, going to praise a good opinion from Noah Rothman which was posted this morning, just before we started recording this, taking aim yet again at the White House's insistence that if you in any way used or approved of the PPP system during COVID, the Democrats unanimously supported, in fact, I think it was passed by voice vote, that you cannot oppose the illegal student loan order that Joe Biden issued last year and that was struck down by the Supreme Court. I mean, this is wrong on the merits in that PPP uh, was designed to be uh, forgiven and was a response to a genuine national emergency. But it's also wrong structurally in that PPP was passed through Congress. So if you have a problem with PPP, and I have some, fine. Uh, Take it up with Congress. That is not the same thing as criticizing the president for quite obviously acting ultra-virus. And Noah makes this case well and persuasively, and I think just as important once again, because it cannot be said enough, this is a remarkably dishonest and cynical line from the White House, and it shows how they have governed. So my pick, as you aforementioned, Dan McLaughlin, corner post putting the McCarthy ouster in perspective. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Magazine. is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, Dominic. Thanks to ExpressVPN and Made In, and thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.